You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Good morning, church. Surprise. My name's Josh Miller. I've been, been a member of the Field Church for three years, uh, and together with my wife and four kids, uh, we serve for Campus Outreach, which is a college ministry at Southeastern. And um, we build laborers on that campus for the lost world. So I'm privileged today, though, to be able to, to teach the Word of God to you and to be able to preach. Today we're going to be in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, so you guys can go ahead and turn there chapter 10, verse 25. We're continuing our joy-filled journey through the book of Luke. Uh, last week, we got to see 17 through 24 in, the, in chapter 10. And so now we're going into the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, we're going to look at and really rediscover or recapture, if you will, a topic of eternal life. Um, this topic is a difficult topic. And I say rediscover it because I think in a lot of ways, We've just, as a culture, allowed it to be swept under the rug, not talked about as much. We've become distracted and preoccupied with the temporal realm. The temporal is everything that we can see and, and feel and hear. We call this our reality, but we forget that reality is the things that we can't see. Colossians 3, 1 through 3 says this, if then you've been raised with Christ, Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. So we as Christians are supposed to concern ourselves with reality, which is eternity. Let's review last week just for an example. What is it that Pastor Sam preached on? It was rejoicing in eternal things, enjoying, rejoicing rather in our salvation. What did he call the disciples to rejoice in? It was when the disciples saw the demons be subject to Jesus' name that they rejoiced. And it was when Jesus saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning that he rejoiced. It was the disciples' names being written in heaven. It was God's sovereign grace that was being distributed to the disciples and anyone who would hear the message of the gospel that through Jesus' authority on earth that Jesus rejoiced in. So these are real things, the things that made our Savior happy. So these are the things that should elicit emotions out of us, the things that we should be engaged in. But we settle for so much less. Our lives are the blink of an eye. We all know this. We, if we were to slow down enough to allow ourselves to feel the weight of eternity, we know that we have a sense of this in our hearts. We intuitively understand that this that you see is not all there is. Everyone snap your fingers. This snap represents the length of your life in view of eternity. And actually, it's greatly over-exaggerated. So life is short, but when we die, we leave no trace. The vast majority of people that have ever lived on the planet 
Scientists estimate over 100 billion people have already died, lived and died on the planet. I couldn't even find an illustration that makes any sense to, to show to you how many people 100 billion people are. The point is, think of 100 billion people and how many of them you actually know. Very few leave any sort of impact on this temporal realm, this temporal earth that we live in. So our lives are much less significant in the scheme of the temporal realm, the earth here, than we could imagine or even really want to admit. Look at James 4.14. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time, then vanishes. Job chapter 14 echoes the same sentiment. He says, man who is one of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. He then goes on in verse seven to compare us to a tree. For there's hope for a tree if it's cut down, that it will sprout again and that its shoots will not cease. Though its roots grow old in the earth and its stump dies in the soil, Yet at the scent of water, it will bud and put out branches like a young plant. But a man dies and is laid low. Man breathes his last, and where is he? So Job is lamenting over the mortality of man, the length of his life. We know the story of Job and the sorrow and everything's been taken from him. But he's saying, even if God were to restore him, what hope is it? Life is so short. So our time here on this earth is so much shorter in view of an eternity. And the Bible teaches us this. If, like I said before, if, if you would allow yourselves to sit with the weight of this question, it's intuitive to know And Ecclesiastes 3.11 shows us this. It says, he's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So God's placed in our hearts, and he hints at this throughout creation, that he is eternal, and that we are to seek his eternity, to discover his limitlessness, his boundlessness. But, and this is the yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end, in his wisdom, he limits man in our ability to find him, to seek him. I don't know if that excites you or not. Like last week, Pastor Sam, the, the, the point of the sermon was to rejoice in our salvation. Many of us take our salvation for granted. The sovereign grace that God has given us to be one of his children, we take that for granted. And so likewise, you don't get excited about your salvation. You may not be excited about living eternally with him in heaven. A.W. Tozer in The Pursuit of God he puts it this way. The modern scientist has lost God amid the wonders of the world, but Christians are in a real danger of losing God amid the wonders of his word. So we forget that God is a person. He's not just a person when he's in the form of Jesus. He who dwells in eternity also desires to have a relationship with us. He desires for us to pursue him, to desire him, to discover him. This is our God. This is your God. Look at 1 John 5.20 and see how awesome this is. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. This is why he's come, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Eternal life, then, is not a place. It's a person. You guys have 
probably all heard the, the saying that we have a God-sized hole in our heart. And whenever I would hear that, I would just imagine like this two-dimensional puzzle piece like fitting on top of the heart. And I'm like, oh, it's probably like a really complicated puzzle piece, you know, if only God can fill it. But it's not only like infinite size, if you imagine a jigsaw puzzle, it's also infinitely dense and infinite in its dimensions. And even after it's plug, plugged, your heart is plugged, if you will, <laughs> you'll find yourself desiring God more. But this is good news because it redefines for us what satisfaction actually is. It's not a momentary satisfaction, like a night out at the bars or a big greasy burger or a big gulp from Circle K. These, by the way, I was in my notes to have a sip there. So these things, the night out, the, the burger, the, the big gulp, they, they leave you emptier when they're gone, hungrier, lonelier, thirstier. With God, we, we're in this paradox of satisfaction. It's seemingly contradictory. We experience his love, but we're not emptied, we're fuller. But this fullness leads to seeking him more. It's like a cup, and every time you set it down, the, the water's still at the top, and, you can, and it gets bigger. But there's a hymn that captures this in a much more beautiful way. We taste thee, O thou living bread, and long to feast upon thee still. We drink of thee, the fountainhead, and thirst our souls from thee to fill. If you're a worshiping soul, this will resonate with you. So, talking of eternity is obviously difficult. It's abstract. But talking about life is pointless without a proper view of eternity. So we are then between a rock and a hard place. On one hand, life is short and hard. Ecclesiastes calls it the vanity of vanities. But on the other hand, eternity is impossible. It's impossible to comprehend. It makes us feel small and insignificant. But, and here's the point of all this abstract thinking to make it something concrete. If we want to live on mission like Jesus did, then we have to grasp the importance and the joy of having eternal life. Our culture, though, deals with this with distraction. And every other culture that's, that's ever been on the earth we place value on things of the earth rather than the things of heaven, on the creators, Romans 1.25 says. We see this in Acts chapter 17. Paul is on a missionary journey. He's in Athens, which is Greece. And, you know, first century Greece, there was all the philosophy going on. They didn't know about Christ in a, in a big way. So he was in Athens in a place called the Areopagus, which is this marketplace. This is where all the philosophers would hang out and philosophize. So he saw all the idols, and one of the idols was labeled to the unknown gods. See, the first century Greeks and all their philosophy, they wanted something new. It was all about what was new. Verse 21 in chapter 17 shows us this. It says, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. The new distracts us. The old wears out. Psalm 25, 2, David says, Oh my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. So David here is hoping in God. He placed his trust in God. He was a man after God's own heart. But yet he's praying that he will not be put to shame. That at the end of his life, everything that he is putting his hope in 
will be found to be worthwhile. All the treasures he's forsaking, the fame, the success, the things that he's deprioritizing, he wants his, what he's putting his hope in to be found to be worthwhile at the end of his life. A few weeks ago, I was um, doing my fantasy football night draft, and it was, it was just funny trying to articulate to my kids what I was going to do. And we were going to meet with some guys and pick these players to be on our team, but it was all completely made up. <laughs> and we had a great time. It was all about the fellowship. But the point is our culture goes to such great lengths to distract us from this eternal question. What happens when I die? What's eternity all about? Are we concerned with our salvation? So church, please don't let this world distract you from the most important question of your life. Be concerned, please, about your soul. Be concerned about where you will go when you die. You must be. So today, as we get into Luke chapter 10, 25 through 37, please let your heart be open to this question of eternal life and to the impossibility of ever getting there on your own without a savior. Let's pray and then we'll read and we'll get into the text. Father, we love you. Uh, we know that you are eternal. You dwell uh, in the heavens, but yet um, in your great love for us, you've invited us into a relationship with you. And so uh, today, as we look in this text, we pray that you would just open our eyes, open our ears and our hearts. Holy Spirit, as you are the teacher, you illuminate. So please do that today as we, as we look at this text. Um, we love you and we trust you in Jesus name. Amen. All right. So let's just read it. Luke 10, 25. Read with me, please. <clears throat> Not out loud. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord, your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. So which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So we have on the surface a pretty simple parable of a good Samaritan. And I will say, and we'll see this clearly in the text, this is one of the most misunderstood passages in the Bible. We, we take it to be a, a passage about charity or about um, being a good neighbor or even knowing who your neighbor is. We can be informed by this passage about those things. 
But what we'll see is that what Jesus is teaching here is the impossibility of being a good Samaritan. So we have two characters. We have the lawyer, then we have Jesus. A lawyer is also known as a scribe. So any time in the Gospels you see the word scribe used, you could think, okay, he's a lawyer. What is a lawyer? It's not what you think of today, um, an expert in our law. It's an expert in the Jewish law, the Jewish traditions. They wrote the law, read the law, taught the law. They memorized um, most of the Pentateuch. They were on par as a religious leader with the Pharisees. Um, nominal Jews, if you will, were subject to their authority. Um, they kind of tiptoed around him. If you could get the sense of this man's pride and esteem, that's kind of how he walked around Jerusalem. And then we have Jesus, which you all know is the Christ, the Messiah by now, as we've seen in Luke clearly. He's an expert in the law too, though. He was a Jew as well. So he's an expert in the law. He's the author of the law after all. He's also the fulfillment of the law. And as we'll see today, he's the savior from the law. So then we have the parable that Jesus uses as a teaching moment for this lawyer. And as I've said, he's showing us the impossibility of keeping this law. The one law, this, this law is found in it's kind of a exposition of Leviticus 19.18. To love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Leviticus 19.18 says. So this law is just Jesus exposing it. He's, a, he's blowing it out and saying, no, this is what that really means. Now, Jesus could have chosen one of a hundred commands in Leviticus or more to sh- attempt to show this man his sin. But today, he, sh- he focuses on love. Love for one's neighbor and what's required of it. So that's what we're going to focus on. So the title then of the sermon is The Love That Is Required for Eternal Life. And we're going to look at three things, the motivation of eternal life, the requirements for eternal life, and then the path to eternal life. Now, before we get started in, the, in our passage, we're going to look back at last week and see how it was informed by what Pastor Sam taught us through 17 through 24. So just go up in your Bible and read with me verse 23 and 24. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So now we have the parable of the Good Samaritan is this contrasting story. Last week, the disciples were blessed to see. And this week we have a lawyer who is not blessed because he can't see. So the disciples are a product over here of God's sovereign grace. And then we have the lawyer, just a product of a sinful, proud heart. Look at, um, well, don't turn with me, just it'll be on the screen. But this is on chapter one, back in the beginning of Luke, verse 52. This is in Mary's song, The Magnificat. And she sings this song of praise after an angel of the Lord had come to her and told her she'd be carrying in her belly the savior of the world. So she responds in this way. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. I think if Luke had one verse that kind of unlocked the mystery of the gospel for us, it, it could be this verse. It, it really 
helps us see the theme of the gospel, the theme of Jesus' teaching. We can read the book through this lens of truth. Jesus has come to bring down the mighty, to exalt the humble, but also to fill the hungry. He sends the rich away empty, the proud. So now let's look back at our, our text, verse 25, and behold. So and behold, you can, or Luke, he uses and behold, this word, over 20 times in his gospel, and it can mean two things. It can be a surprising development, or can connect us to the previous passage. So I'm, I'm pretty sure, I believe, that Luke is using it in the full sense of the word here. The disciples are blessed to see what they see. But then over here, the lawyer is missing it. That's surprising, but it's also connecting. So what is he missing exactly? Well, what did the disciples see? If you remember last week, they saw that Jesus was the Son of God. They saw the Savior. They saw their own salvation and rejoiced in that. They saw eternal life and the importance of eternal things. So then the lawyer is missing those things. He's missing the Son of God. He's missing salvation for his soul. But how can he be missing it? Because he asked the right question as, as I've tried to see you, get you to see today the importance of the question of eternal life. The lawyer's on the right track. He asked Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This is a good question. It's the most important question. So then it must be his heart, his motivation. So let's, let's look at the first point, the motivation of eternal life. Those who have eternal life, who will live with God forever, they want God. Bottom line, this lawyer does not want God. He just wants to live we all know, hopefully, that there's nothing we can do to inherit eternal life. But yet, when he says, what shall I do? Jesus doesn't shut him down right away. Jesus is the master evangelist, and he's working here. He's on an evangelistic encounter. And so we have to learn from him. How is he handling this man? I think a lot of us, as Christians, would immediately try to correct this man's doctrine on the spot. Oh, you don't have to do anything to inherit eternal life. Just believe in Jesus. But Jesus is letting this play out. He's letting, letting it build. So let's see why he does that. The question, what must I do? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? This is not some random question that the lawyer came up with. It's informed by something that he knows very well, the law. Look at Leviticus 18.5. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So the lawyer thinks that living by them means eternal life. It's not as clear here, but look at Deuteronomy 5.33. In fact, if you will, turn to Deuteronomy because we have about five or six passages in Deuteronomy chapter five, and I just want you to see it for yourself. So Deuteronomy, when we've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, it's the fifth book of the Bible. Chapter five, verses 33. <clears throat> It says, you shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, and that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. So the law isn't talking about eternal life here. Deuteronomy, Leviticus, they're not books about how to get to heaven necessarily. They're books that comprehensively describe the life that a people of the Lord will live in light of the great mercy and love that they've received from their God. 
So the law then isn't necessarily about gaining eternal life. It assumes eternal life. It's motivated by eternal life. It's showing the people the way they should live in light of their eternal God. The one that's rescued them from Egypt, delivered them through the desert, and will deliver them into the promised land. But primarily, the law serves the purpose of showing them their sin, showing them their need for a savior. Look at Romans 7, 7 on the screen. Paul, an expert in the law as well, this is how he responds to the law. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. He's echoing with the Israelites, the way they respond back in chapter 5. Look at chapter 5, verse 24. This is how the Israelites respond to receiving the law when Moses comes down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments. They say, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we shall die. So they immediately recognize the impossibility of seeing God and then living unto him. They're unworthy of the law. They're unable to keep its statutes. They weren't, able, they weren't even able to look at God, let alone live a life set apart to him. So the law reveals God's holiness and our unworthiness. Look at verse 26, still in chapter 5. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fire as we have and has still lived? This is such a good response. It's a right response. This is how Isaiah responds in chapter 6. Remember, he sees the glory of the Lord. Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. We know this is the right response because continue in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 28. This is how God responds to their response. He says, I've heard the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me, which is to be in awe of me, and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and their descendants forever. So God was pleased that the Israelites understood the eternal nature of their God. This is the motivation that God is seeking. Those who want to actually live with him forever. Those who know that they can't live with him forever in their current state. Those who have experienced his richness, his mercy, and they want to continue to experience that forever. Those who want to dwell in his presence forever. Those who want to have God as their God and have God be their God. Now, this is what the lawyer is not doing. This is where he went wrong. So he's revealing his motives to Jesus. He just wants the prize of heaven, the recognition, significance, being in the in crowd. He's revealing his true motives. And if you go back to Luke now, we're done with Deuteronomy. Um, Luke Verse uh, 29, he says, but desiring to justify himself. So this is his motive. He's wanting to justify his actions before man and before God himself. To build out a little more the um, general perception of lawyers at this time, just flip over in your Bible to Luke chapter 11, verse 46. Jesus is dishing out the woes of, to the Pharisees 
and the lawyers are feeling a little left out. So they say, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And Jesus said, woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. And then skip down to 52. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge, for you did not enter yourselves, speaking of the kingdom, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. So this is the test when it says the lawyer stood up to test him. This is what he's, he's getting Jesus to talk about difficult things, hoping he'll trap him in heresy. But we also see that the lawyers have taken away the keys to the kingdom of God. They've made the law the kingdom. To them, the law represented self-righteousness, control, power, significance. And they chose all these things over God, over their own salvation. So this qualifies for us then most likely this lawyer's motivation. He's either actively being, actively being deceptive towards the Jews in order to keep them away from Jesus, keep them away from salvation, or at the, at the very least, he's just a part of the problem because of wrong doctrine. So why is he doing this and how is he doing this? Well, why? He wants to enter eternal life through keeping the law because he loves the law. He loves the law and what it represents, the power, significance, control. He doesn't want to give that up because in this state, as a teacher of the law, he's in control. He is God. Remember verse 52 of chapter 1? It's the humble that he exalts, the hungry he comes to save. This is not the lawyer. So Jesus knows this. Obviously, he knows the man's heart. And he's taken this lawyer on a journey. You say you want eternal life. Well, what does the law say? He knows that eventually this will expose him, the lawyer, to his need for a savior. His religion is inadequate. It's not going to get him there. So Jesus, our master of evangelism, is being patient and wise with him. He's not immediately correcting him. He wants him to feel the weight of his sin, to feel the glory and the majesty of God, the perfection that's required from God, the transformation that's required, the Savior that's required. So how does Jesus do this? With the requirement of eternal life. So now let's look at the requirement for eternal life. Look at verse 26. He said to him, Jesus said to the lawyer, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind. And your neighbor as yourself. When he says what is written in the law, how do you recite it? The Greek there, how do you recite it? Can also read, I'm sorry, it says how do you read it? But it could also read how do you recite it? So Jesus then is, is referencing a specific passage in Scripture. The specific passage is Deuteronomy 6.5. It's known as the Shema. It was a Jewish tradition to recite the Shema two times a day. Now that's, that's to include the you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind. And then the love your neighbor as yourself, that is from Leviticus 19.18, as we've already seen but the point is, any nominal Jew of the day could have recited this. He, you know, the, Jesus didn't even give him a hard question, really. But what exactly is the Shema? 
it's, it's shown in other verses, like the rich young ruler, Jesus shows that this is a summary of the full law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Together, this summarizes the law, not just the Ten Commandments, but the whole law that God give, gave the Israelites. So the first four commandments, no other God before me, make no idols, don't say the Lord's name in vain, and then keep the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. So the Shema, loving the Lord your God with everything you have, heart, soul, strength, and mind, that is required in order to fulfill the first four commandments. That's what's required to, lo- or it's required to love God perfectly in order to do those. It's a full-on devotion to him. It takes every bit of us every bit of our heart, our soul, our strength, our mind, every bit of our person. So not only do, take, do, do following these commands take everything you got, they themselves are impossible. And if it was possible to follow them, then you would love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. James 2.10, though, also shows us that it's impossible to fail in one of them while failing in all the rest. So if you break one of them, you break them all because it takes all of them to follow any of them. But these commands not only require full dedication or full devotion, they require salvation. There's plenty of New Testament scriptures that show us this. But I want to show you what Jesus and this lawyer both know. Remember, this is a conversation between an expert in the law and the author of the law. Deuteronomy reveals what's needed to keep the law. Deuteronomy reveals that salvation is what is needed. It's not completely hidden to them, but yet it is. God says to the Israelites that it will take a circumcision of your heart to follow these statutes in Deuteronomy 36. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So in order to fulfill these commandments, we need a circumcised heart and God will give us that. That's what salvation is. God will give the Israelites this. He will give the Jewish religious leaders this if they would but humble themselves before God. Same thing's echoed in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 11. You could just jot that down and look at it later. But how does God circumcise their hearts? That's an abstract concept. He does it in Christ. Remember 2 Corinthians 1.20, every promise of God finds its yes in Christ. That's what this means. Now, the Jews didn't know exactly how God would save them. There were hints. Think of Isaiah 53. It's a beautiful hint towards how the Lord would deliver us from our sin. But it didn't matter that they didn't know the exact way that God would save them. It was their faith that God would save them that saved them. Everything is done in faith. We have faith in God, faith in his eternal nature. We have faith in his ability and his desire to save us to circumcise our hearts, whatever that means. Look at Romans 10.5. There's a long one. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live with them. This is where the lawyer sits. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead, essentially saying, where is our salvation? When will it come to us? But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. We have everything we need to be saved. So do the Jews. 
Because, and here's the proof of that, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. It's interesting that the lawyer is trying to justify himself with his mouth, but that's not what the mouth is for. The mouth is for confessing. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the Lord, for the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Unfortunately, this lawyer wants righteousness based on the law. This is why Jesus says to him, do this and you will live. Do this in the Greek is a, a abiding love. It's a continuous love. It's not a one-time thing. This is how you must live. What's surprising, though, about the lawyer's response is that in light of this command to love God perfectly, to love his neighbors perfectly, essentially saying, okay, I got that. I got, I'm, I'm loving God with everything I got. I love my neighbors perfect. But just so we're on the same page here, Jesus, like who is my neighbor? At what, what's the limit of my neighborly love that I must show to people in order to fulfill this command that I'm pretty much knocking out of the park right now? He underestimates completely God's righteousness. He underestimates his own sin. He thinks he's a good person. So because of that, he assumes that it's easier to live right than it actually is. He makes God so small. As a result, so will be his life. So the parable then is an exposition, if you will, of the requirement of eternal life. He's not getting it. He he doesn't get how heavy the law is, the weight of God's glory. So Jesus now is going to draw it out for him. So let's look at the parable. Now, you could draw out so much from this parable, we're just going to hover over it because of time. Remember, Jesus is on an evangelistic encounter, and he's attempting to get this man to see his sin his need for a savior. He could have chosen one of a hundred things in Leviticus to point out this man's sin, but he chooses love. So we have to see, as a church, as we expose this text, we have to see what is the love that Jesus requires. We said before, this is one of the most famous passages in scripture. It's, it's very misunderstood. The, the world uses it all the time as a passage about charity or being a neighbor. You know, it's gotta be a good person. Just go be a good Samaritan. But what it's really shown is we can't be a good person. We can't be a good Samaritan. Now, the parable will do two things depending on your heart, depending on where you're at. If you're one of those who has salvation, it will show you how, how you will live eternally with God. It's exemplary. It shows you what the gospel is producing in you, the sanctification. It's a pattern, an example. It also, though, reminds us of the righteousness of God. It reminds us of our sin. That's why we spend time every church service confessing. It reminds us too, though, on a, on a good note, of, of our nature, our, our transformed children of God nature, that we are to live like this. Maybe not now, maybe not yet, but soon. Now, if you're one of those who will not live eternally with God, it shows you why you won't. It shows the impossibility of doing anything to inherit eternal life. It reveals the true standard of being a good person. 
Now, either one of those camps, no matter who you are, this is the right response. In Deuteronomy 5.26, we've already read it, but let's look at it again. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of, the, of fire as we have and has still lived? Jesus is building out the requirement of eternal life. Not building by adding, he's just exposing. This is what my law says. Now, he does this in four ways. So we're going to look at uh, four characteristics, and we could have gotten 10 from here, but we're just going to look at four. Four ways that shows us the requirement of loving perfectly. The first one is impartiality. So what's the, what does a lawyer ask? Uh, desiring to justify himself, who is my neighbor? So he wants to limit, limit his reach, limit the requirement of the law. Jesus shows him that it isn't about who your neighbor is, it's how to love. Like, let's get there first. You think you love well, so he uses the Samaritan, someone who's not a neighbor, definitely not a neighbor in, in his culture. So this gets in the way of us loving perfectly. It's prejudice. We think that we as people belong to a certain group of people. We're, we think that we're divided, divided by color, race, and ethnicity. Town, city, values, sports teams, interests, hobbies. Like the lawyer, we want to limit our reach of neighborly duty. God can't possibly want us to love that person or that group of people. And I really think with all that's being polarized in our country right now, there's this complete global shift towards becoming independent of God, becoming tolerant people, post-Christian, enlightened we can see here how the gospel is the only answer. Now, we hear that a lot. It's become cliche. How is the gospel the answer? How is a biblical worldview going to fix the world? Well, it's because it resolves every single social injustice in the world. It unites us all under one moral code where, where stranger becomes friend, love becomes our highest aim towards them. It compels us to love all people, not just those who are convenient or easy. So if you have prejudice in your heart, then you'll never be able to love people perfectly. The second characteristic we see that you will need if you're going to love people perfectly is selflessness, self-denial. Look at 31 and 32. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, oh, we'll stop there. So we have to deny ourselves of our plans, our ambitions, even our own safety. This road that Jesus used in the illustration was a dangerous road. It was, it was steep and it came down from Jerusalem into the city. I'm sorry, down from Jerusalem into Jericho. And it was, it was known that robbers would lay in wait because there was all these rock outcroppings. And so in order for these, this priest and this Levite who represent the law, you know, the priest served in the temple and he carried out all the requirements of the law and the Levite likewise was his helper. They were to, it was required of them to deny their own safety at, at this time in order to love this man. That's probably why they don't. The point is, we can't do that. We, we can't deny ourselves of our own plans, ambitions, and safety all the time. Nine times out of, out of 10, we are the priest and the Levite. We're the one that sees our fellow Jew 
We see our neighbor and we justify a million different ways why we shouldn't help them, why we can't help them. Now, maybe the priest or the Levite, they just, they don't want to be called unclean. You know, if they touched a dead body, they couldn't serve in the temple for a month. They don't want to deprive the people of God of, you know, the gift of them to serve in the temple. Or maybe they just don't want to throw their money and their resources away on this dying man. They're already giving this so many good things back in Jerusalem. Or maybe they know that this man's death is a result of God's wrath. They don't want to get in the way of God. Who are they to judge what God's doing in this man's life? The point is we justify our missed opportunities to our neighbors constantly. We spend more time justifying than we do actually helping. It's if anyone has young kids, when you give them a chore to do, like throw something, it'll take 24 seconds. They spend five minutes instead lying on the floor, kicking, screaming, spinning around. It's like, that doesn't even make sense. Why would you do that? We have the same mind though, so we, we can't really judge them. So Jesus and the lawyer are both fully aware. I'm sorry, I skipped ahead. So that's selflessness. We have this perfect selflessness. We have to deny our ambitions, deny our goals, our plans. We have to deny our own safety in order to love God perfectly. Who can live like that? So now we have this Samaritan man. He comes along. And remember, he's on a journey, and he forsakes that journey and turns to this man. Keep in mind the beef between the Samaritan and the Jews, they, they hate each other. There's certainly some prejudice, some racism going on there. Most likely, if the Jew that lay dying was conscious enough to see that it was a Samaritan helping him, he would reject his help. Let me die. So Jesus and the lawyer, they're, they're both fully aware of the implications of this Samaritan that's coming along providing care, offering mercy, offering love. Mercy and law didn't come from, or I'm sorry, mercy and love didn't come from the law represented by the priest and the Levite. It comes from a Samaritan who's willing to love his enemy. So that's the selflessness that's required of us if we're to love perfectly. The third thing we see is compassion. So in uh, verse 33, but a Samaritan as he journeyed came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. So he notices the man, he has compassion on the man, and then he goes to the man. We don't have compassion like we should unless it leads to action. This is the hardest one for me, writing this. I am 100% preaching to myself. Your tears don't clothe the orphans. Your prayers don't feed the hungry. Remember James 2.14? a brother or sister who's poorly clothed but, and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? When you ignore the guy on the side of the interstate and his truck broke down, he's walking back to the gas station, or the guy that hangs out with the sign, you say, well, I can't give him money. He's just going to go buy drugs with it. And did he tell you that? That's justifying with your mouth. So when you ignore a need, any need, it's a lack of compassion. It's not loving perfectly. This is just the requirement that Jesus is laying out. This is not my idea of compassion. When you ignore an opportunity to witness about the truth of God to a friend or coworker, that's lack of compassion. You're seeing a person laying dead in their sin on the side of the road and you pass by. I pass by. 
So that's the compassion that's required of us to live perfectly and love perfectly. Finally, our last characteristic is generosity. So look back in uh, 34. It says he bounds up his wounds. He pours on, pours on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, so he stayed the night with him, and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. So he, he pours on oil and wine. He puts him on his donkey, two denarii. And then to cap it off, he says, whatever else you spend, I'll repay you. The oil and wine, just, they represent here just precious supplies to any traveler. Remember, our Samaritan was on a journey. We don't know how long, but he most likely needed this oil and wine. He then most likely rips his own clothes to bandage the man. He puts him on his own animal and walks with him the rest of the way. This is a lavish, abundant, generous love. I love everyone here, but if you're still listening, thinking that you can accomplish this, the last thing he does is he says, um, whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. That's a blank check. If you want to try this out, the offering basket does come around every Sunday. You can just try it. I don't work for the church, so just, just saying, give it a shot. Jesus is showing this man, though, that unless you give of everything you have and then leave a blank check that would most likely put you in the negative, you don't really love your neighbor. This is the Christian's generosity. This is what is truly required of us. Now, in light of all this, just these four characteristics, we could have looked at more. Jesus asked him, who proved to be a neighbor? Well, the one who showed him mercy. He can't even mention that it was the Samaritan. He has so much hate in his heart, he doesn't even want to mention his name. Jesus says, go and do likewise. This is like we saw in verse 28, the present tense. It's a continuous response. Don't just go do this once and you're good. Every day you must live like this. So now this church is where the rubber meets the road. We're at the path to eternal life. How do you respond to this, to this requirement of eternal life, to the love that is required. There's only two ways. On one hand, you got righteousness based on the laws. Romans 10, five shows us. You can follow this command for the rest of your days. Remember, this is just one in a hundred commands that Jesus could have exposed for us today. So you can have righteousness based on the law or you can have righteousness based on faith. This is salvation through Christ. You admit your sin your inability to keep this. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short. Romans 3.10, no one is righteous, not one. No one seeks for God. Or Paul responds in Romans 7.24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's how he would have responded to this parable. And then you confess. You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Romans 10.9. And then we go and we do. We attempt to do this. Then we can live by the truth of God's word. Then we delight ourselves in the law of the Lord. Psalm 1. We become imitators of Christ. This is what the call to be a disciple of Christ means. In closing, church, please don't distract yourselves anymore from this all-important question of eternal life. There's nothing more important than you working out your salvation. 
And unfortunately for you, there's no more being on the fence. You've heard the truth. You have to make a decision. And to not decide is to decide. And either on one hand, you disagree that what I've argued today, that the soul is eternal. You disagree with the righteousness of God and his requirements. But let me be clear. These are, these are not my opinions. These are clear, congruent biblical doctrines. And these aren't denominational beliefs either. You're not going to escape this by going to any other church that preaches the Bible. These are historical Christian truths, never to be proven wrong. They will not put you to shame. Or if you don't disagree, then it's just a lifestyle issue. You just want to be your own God. You love your sin. You love your self-righteousness. The control, the power, the significance that you find in it, whatever your idol may be. And you just want to maintain that lifestyle. I get that. I've been there. But because I'm up here, I have to warn you that you will be judged. Romans 2.6, God will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury, tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. So in light of the wrath and the fury, either you stand with the blood of Christ as your defense, or you stand condemned. So please receive the free gift of God that is eternal life. And lastly, to the Christian. Let our text today serve as a reminder of your place in eternity with God. Rejoice in that. There are pleasures forevermore. And today, let our parable remind you of what the gospel is producing in you. A love for your neighbor. Not a strategic love. This is a love to anyone who needs it impartial, selfless, compassionate, and generous. Let's pray. Father, we, we humble ourselves before you knowing that there is no way we could ever live up on our own to your standard. God, we love you and we just pray that you would open our eyes to see more of your glory, to feel the weight of your glory, that we could respond rightly the way the Israelites did in Deuteronomy, the way Paul did. God, who could live with your glory? We thank you today for the text, and I just pray that you would uh, be with us all as we go out as Christians and try to live out uh, through your Holy Spirit's power, the truth in your word. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.